This is the Development Policy Centre podcast and I'm Robin Davies. In this episode, I interview Bill Armstrong. Bill's best known as head of the non-government organisation Australian Volunteers International for 20 years until his retirement in 2002. Bill was made an officer in the General Division of the Order of Australia in 2003 for services to the international community. Bill's played a leadership role in Australian volunteering for more like 60 years, and he's still doing it. I'm not going to say a lot by way of introduction because a lot of biographical details come out in the conversation. So straight to the interview. Bill, I wanted to start with a question about your role in, in international volunteering in general. I think it's it's important right at the beginning to get a sense of really what, what you've devoted much of your working life to and, and why. So you're, you're very well known for your leadership role in international volunteering, particularly as head of what was the Overseas Service Bureau, later became Australian Volunteers International. And I guess in that role, you would have often dealt with volunteering sceptics who think that volunteering is a kind of amateur activity, that it doesn't have a lot of impact or at least lasting impact. So if you're talking to a sceptic and you want to tell them about a situation where volunteering really did have a significant lasting impact, what would that be? Oh, Robin, I I think that uh, when you're talking to the sceptics, of course, you you are right that... um, Regardless of qualifications and uh, and experience of volunteers, and they were, volunteers are usually very highly experienced, but there are lots of people who somehow can't get out from under the fact that if you don't earn big money, you're not really uh, professional, or you're uh, there's something wrong with you, <laughs> or you're a or a missionary mercenary or a misfit. That's usually the thing that uh, they seem to come up with. To talk about uh, the role of volunteers and uh, achievements, I mean, I can go back to the PNG days, the Papua New Guinea days, when Australian volunteers were substantially, uh, there were substantial numbers of Australian volunteers in nursing and teaching, in the medical field and uh, engineering uh, right through Papua New Guinea, and I would say that um, uh, while it's difficult to go and pick out one in particular, you just have to say that uh, a whole lot of the country was very, very dependent on uh, on volunteers. Uh, I remember our program in Vietnam before the Australian government went back with its uh, its program in Vietnam. We were involved with volunteers. Um, uh, through a project approach, which is not a normal approach that we do, but a project approach where we uh, trained or upgraded in about a thousand uh, Vietnamese English language teachers. Um, you can talk about refugee camps in Africa and other parts of the world where where volunteers, not just only from Australia but from other parts of the world. Uh, have been have made significant contributions. Um, I can think of a, uh, a situation in the Cook Islands in the Pacific where, for something like ten or fifteen years, uh, vo- it was a volunteer, not the same volunteer, who was responsible for the electrical engineering, the, the power plant of the Cook Islands for many years until they were able to take responsibility. In East Timor, following ninety nine. 
Australian volunteers worked there. There were some 200 from Australia, some of those working through the UN, working in very senior positions within the fledging public service at that time in health, uh, at the housing department, uh, and uh, one or two of those volunteers went off, were chosen by the UN to go off and work at UN headquarters. So in terms of uh, describing the, the quality and the professionalism of volunteers, uh, I, it, there's no problem about that. And uh, the, they are uh, usually very highly qualified and and often much more qualified than people that they're working alongside of who are earning a lot more money. And maybe later on I can talk a little bit about the whole concept of money. Yeah. Actually, I wanted to focus just briefly on the case of East Timor because, um, I mean, you're based in Melbourne. Australian Volunteers International is headquartered in, in Melbourne. And for reasons that have never been completely clear to me, you know, there's a special relationship between um, Melbourne or possibly the whole of Victoria and uh, and Timor Leste. So, you know, there was a, a, a huge upsurge, a huge response uh, in the wake of the, the East Timor or Timor Leste crisis. Uh, and a lot of that, uh, in Australia's case, came out of Victoria. And a lot of those people, uh, the volunteers, didn't just go to Dili and work in public administration. They went way out into the field and did things that I think the highly paid consultants uh, were very unlikely to do for more than a few days. So I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the role that volunteers, especially from Victoria, played, I guess, out in the rural areas in East Timor. Yeah, well, you're right. Uh, Victoria did play a significant role and so did Australian Volunteers International and some of the other uh, uh, organisations uh, from Australia. I, I suspect you've got to go back in history to find out uh, why there was such a close relationship and it goes back, I'm sure, to the to the military operation of the Second World War. Uh, whether or, uh, I'm not sure about this fact, but it seems to me that there are a lot of... Uh, Victorians who were in East Timor and there was uh, at that time, and so it's uh, there's a long memory both in in uh, in East Timor and in Victoria of that. So uh, there was a lot of people. I can remember on one occasion we were looking to uh, work closely with the Victorian government. Uh, and uh, we put out a call, the Victorian government and ourselves, that's Australian Volunteers International, a call for volunteers, and we had something like 2,000 responses. So there was an incredible upsurge of interest and uh, support, uh, which, of course, continues through the friendship groups and so on uh, in Victoria, and many of those friendship groups had volunteers go and work in the in the field in the rural areas, as organisers, administrators, um, uh, teachers of English, uh, and so on, uh, right through. I, I personally have been involved with uh, SWAI in uh, Kovalima Province, which was SWAI was where the cathedral was, uh, where where some ninety people were slaughtered in the cathedral in ninety nine. It's right near the border of West Timor. And uh, we had the Australian Volunteer Program placed three volunteers there over a period of six or seven years uh, who worked with the community, with that uh, Timor community in Swai. 
and uh, have now built, there is now a, a thriving community centre, some 20 to 30 staff, full-time and part-time, training people uh, in government and in the community in things like uh, English language, computer training, uh, agriculture, women's programs in the village areas. Uh, and uh, while you can't say that that was the result of the volunteer, the volunteer it's a result really of the community, but the volunteer's job was to facilitate and encourage and and enable those people to come together and to, to build that community. I'd, I'd like to move on to talk about your experience with the Overseas Service Bureau. I'm not sure when it changed its name, but I believe it was still OSB when you took on the CEO. Yeah, so. yeah, we changed it in 99, I think it was. Yep. I think okay. it was 99, yep. All right, so you, I think you started in the early 80s, around 82. I actually worked at the Overseas Service Bureau when it, when it first set up the Australian Volunteer Program in 1963 through to 1970. That's right, and then so that came, was my came first back case. as CEO in 82, that's right. I believe. Yeah, That's right, yeah. So when you took on the leadership role, it was a very small organisation, um, just yeah, a dozen staff or so, budget around 400,000 when you left two decades later, it was really one of the most substantial NGOs in Australia. Uh, the staff had grown tenfold and the, and the budget was around $20 million. Now, that's huge growth. And I'm interested, I guess, in two things. You know, what, what was driving the growth? But also, how did you manage that? And, and how did it change the, the character of the, the work and the organisation? Well, I, I mean, uh, yes, I'm, I'm tempted to say luck. Um, but, um, yes, the organisation was going through a, a, a tough time before I, before I came back and took over. So I was a bit lucky in one sense to be able to pick up an organisation that uh, had had some difficulties. And uh, the government... Uh, the government came in behind us at that stage uh, and was really keen to develop, have the uh, volunteer program developed. So I have to uh, give credit to the government for giving that sort of support. I think the other thing to say is that um, the uh, developing countries that we were working in uh, at the time, they were, um, they were really uh, searching and looking for technical assistance of the kind that the volunteers provided. So, you know, from Mozambique to uh, uh, right through Africa and Asia and the Pacific, there was huge, huge demand for Australian volunteers uh, at the time. And at the same time, there was um, there was a a lot of Australians uh, prepared and still are and always have been prepared to uh, to be volunteers. So all that came together along with the the Australian government uh, at that time being prepared to come in behind uh, the community uh, program because it was a community based program, community run program. Um, and uh, so that's that's provided the opportunity for it to grow. Uh, it did grow. It grew very quickly. And it, uh, uh, I guess, the other element of that was um, uh, the recruitment of staff. Uh, by the end, uh, I would have thought that uh, Australian Volunteers International uh, 
had one of the best staff uh, of any organisation in the country. Uh, I don't know what you put that down to. I, I think you uh, there was a, a lot of interest in working there. It was an organisation that was was open. It was an organisation that um, was flexible and also an organisation that uh, was innovative. We were we uh, were able to do things like I mentioned before to work in Vietnam in the very early days, uh, to work in Cambodia uh, immediately after uh, Cambodia. We were able to move into Cambodia uh, with a program. We had um, the uh, we had the English language programs in, in both those places. We were able to work in a place like the Solomon Islands with a project called the uh, Solomon Islands, uh, an organisation called the Solomon Islands Development Trust, where we provided some 20 or 30 uh, volunteers over time working at a community development level out in the, out in the outer islands of, uh, of that country. So, um, and those opportunities were all there. And at the time, the finance and the resources uh, were, able, were able to be found. So we, um, so we grew um, um, fairly quickly. How did I cope with that? Well, I was a fitter and turner. <laughs> I learned on the run uh, how to manage an organisation. Uh, I was able to recruit staff who, uh, who were technically competent uh, in doing that. I always think that management is about, is about knowing uh, what you need by way of uh, expert assistance and being able to find them and uh, not believing that you think you know how to do everything. Um, and um, I guess that worked for me. So I'm interested actually in that the, the role of the government uh, in coming in to support the organisation. So was that under Hayden as foreign minister? Who was the minister at the time? No, no, it was, uh, it was uh, under a liberal government at the time. Uh, 82. Um, so that was Fraser. Um, and I'm the, trying to, Tony, the foreign minister. Tony Street, perhaps? Yes, it was um, Tony Street, yeah. But yeah. the foreign minister was a little guy from down the Western District of Victoria, and he was he was very supportive. Uh, and uh, But you, in a sense, Robin, to understand it properly, you need to go back and find out what happened in the decade before or the 14 years before that because uh, the government was having lots of problems with the Overseas Service Bureau and there was a... I don't know whether you know that there was a, um, a committee of review set up uh, uh, chaired by Baden-Teague, who was Senator Baden-Teague, uh, chaired a Senate committee to uh, review the organisation, and the, the the seeds for that came from uh, the suggestion that Australia should have a Peace Corps, uh, and uh, Aid or ADAR or whatever it was called in those days said, uh, "Hang on, we've got this organisation. Why don't we have a look and see what it's up to?" And uh, so there was that investigation, and um, that's where the big change came, the recommendations that came back from that committee of review. That's interesting. So that's a, that's a subject we will come to shortly, but that, that question of how far Australia's volunteering effort really is an initiative of the government, and that's come up again and again. And, of course, most recently it's led to the creation of the Australian Civilian Corps, which is really in no way a volunteer 
outfit. But the same thought keeps uh, coming up over the, over the years. I'd like to go to a more general level just for a moment. So beyond volunteering, you've been very active in the Australian NGO community for a long time, working with ActionAid Australia, Caritas. You were president of the peak NGO body, the Australian Council for International Development, for, for four years. And you've worked early in your career in development education. So you've got quite a unique and very long-term view of, of the Australian NGO sector. So I know it's a big question, but how have you seen it change over over time? How has it evolved? And do you think it's changed in a good way? Or do you think NGOs have become a bit too corporate? I think the major change that's taken place is that uh, the community engagement component of the not-for-profit area or the community sector, whichever you want to call it, has uh, has lessened quite dramatically in the last 30 years. Uh, by that I mean that most of these organisations, uh, their beginnings, their foundations were very much uh, initiatives that came out of the community. If you take, community, take Oxfam Community Aid Abroad, it was uh, a series of uh, small groups of community groups right around the country uh, linking with uh, projects and programs overseas and raising funds and building relationships for, uh, and uh, the chain and the same goes for the Australian volunteer program it was an, an initiative out of Melbourne University student Christian movement etc cetera, etc cetera, with support from church groups and others when I came to the uh, Australian volunteer program. Uh, in the beginning, we received funds from the churches, from the community, from from the uh, service groups, uh, Rotary and all the rest of it. Um, so gradually over time, organisations, those organisations and others have begun to tender for government money. In the beginning, if you go back to the 70s, the 80s, uh, the Australian government came in behind a lot of uh, that work, ACFOA or ACFID as it is today. Um, the uh, was a link to the Australian government and negotiated, and I was part of the negotiations that government would give support to uh, community-based organisations. So they came in behind the uh, those community organisations saw the programs they were running and uh, decided uh, that they would back them and support them and give them extra extra support so that they could uh, uh, they could increase uh, that kind of work gradually that changed to government then moving towards uh, tendering out its own programs to NGOs um, and today, most of the 140 organisations that make up ACFID are fairly dependent, many of them very dependent, on Australian government money. Gradually, uh, the change took place that rather than the government providing funds to the NGOs or the community organisations for their programs, their initiatives, Gradually, that began to change so that the government was tendering out programs which were government programs. Uh, so they weren't the initiative of the community, but they were programs of the government that 
sometimes linked fairly closely to the work of the NGO and sometimes uh, was not quite so uh, so close. And so today you've got a great dependence on government tendering, which in some senses is not much different than the way in which the commercial op- commercial world operates with government uh, and uh, in its uh, funding. And that means, of course, that the control of um, of NGOs or their programs is much more in the hands of the government rather than in the hands of the community. What do you think needs to happen at the present time then? Do you think NGOs need to actually have a strategy for weaning themselves off government funding and reconnect with the community? I, I think if we're serious about development... Uh, because development is not aid. I'm not, not opposed to aid. Aid is important. Welfare is important. But as everybody knows, welfare and aid does not uh, enable change to take place. It doesn't tackle the real causes. It tackles the symptoms. And uh, so if we're serious about working for change and enabling uh organizations, communities and governments themselves to take responsibility for their own their own situation, then uh, I think we have to uh, really look seriously at, at what is development. And we talk a lot about development being meaning that people take responsibility for their own situation. We hear this a lot in Australia being said about Australian indigenous uh, indigenous Australia. We're all the time saying that they've got to be responsible, they've got to take responsibility, but most of the programs that are government-funded and run us programs that provide services. They do things to them, they do things for them, but they don't do things with them. Uh, That's the uh, slogan that we use in Indigenous community volunteers. So, yes, I, I think, I hope that what will what will take place in the next few decades is that the community organisations will move back to the community much more. We'll work out ways to be self-reliant, which may mean reducing in size, of course, because uh, they may not be able to raise the sorts of funds they can get from government. But uh, the control of these organisations uh, should be much more in the hands of the community and not dependent on a, a major donor like the government. The availability of government funding has another effect, I think, which is you know a proliferation of, of NGOs. There, there are incentives for NGOs to be created and or to split uh, in order to access funding, particularly through the central funding vehicle. So in your view, do you think there's, there's scope for some mergers and acquisitions across the sector? Oh, look, I've always believed uh, the, I've always believed and really tried to work towards that, Robin, that, uh, that NGOs should at least work together in partnership, if not uh, combine and come together. Um, I mean, you've got, to, uh, you've got to actually look at the NGO community uh, there, where they come from and what their real motives are for operating. But, uh, but over the years, and I could talk about some of the stories of where we did try to work together, but yes, what's happened, of course, is uh, you asked a question about being more commercial. Because of the tendering process, uh, the competition 
uh, aspect has been increased dramatically because uh, uh, NGOs now have to compete for funds. So when there's a funding alloc- allocation for some funds to, to go to Indonesia or an African country or a program somewhere, you've got NGOs in Australia competing with one another uh, for those funds, not working together, not coming together. Uh, it's just like the commercial field. I mean, and everything becomes commercial in confidence. You can't share with the other organisation what you're doing because because uh, that's part of your uh, competitive uh, uh, edge to get the funds. So, yes, there's, there's far too much of that. And uh, and I I put the blame on that to the uh, the competitive approach to funding. It's interesting to reflect on that in connection with volunteering because there was a period where I think it's fair to say the Overseas Service Bureau had pretty much a monopoly on international volunteering in Australia, and I think at the time within the aid agency, there was a feeling that more competition would be desirable. And I think that uh, is in part what led to the creation of the um, Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development Program, which was managed by another organisation. What's your view about that? I mean, there's always going to be a tension between monopoly and competition, but in, in particularly in the area of volunteering, do you think it makes sense for there to be more than one significant vol- volunteer-sending organisation in Australia? No, I don't think so. I think that uh, there, there's a place. There is a place for other volunteer programs. That's that, that's true. Uh, that specialise in particular fields, and uh, you do have uh, uh, Red R, which was a volunteer program, uh, which was another form of volunteer programs for engineers. You had the churches, palms. You had uh, there were other groups operating uh, in the field. Uh, and there was some part. Well, there was quite a lot of partnership uh, there, potential there, as well as partnership that was uh, happening in during my day uh, around the place. Yeah, but what really happened to to AVI uh, in that sense was that you're right. Uh, there was a very strong feeling there should be competition, uh, and that that would improve the quality. The volunteers, I don't know what it was meant to do, uh, but um, the uh, beginnings of the Youth Ambassador Program uh, were really, uh, the seeds of that were with us at the AVI. Uh, in fact, we did the initial research, we did the, the work on uh, uh, a pilot program in, in, um, in Thailand, uh, and then somehow along the way, it was taken. It was taken away and uh, and given to uh, what fundamentally really was at that time uh, a kind of not-for-profit consulting firm, I guess, which has uh, now grown and grown and taken more and more of and, and received more and more of the uh, the tenders. Um, has it improved the volunteer program? Well, I'm not in a position to uh, to say whether it's improved. It. Uh, I think you can you can absolutely say that the cost per volunteer has gone up quite considerably as a result of that. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't think that. Uh, I mean, I don't want to comment about the quality of the the program because I've always had a view that volunteers. Volunteers are good people, uh, really good people, and you can mess them around a lot, and they'll still damn, they'll still do a damn good job. 
but um, I, I think that there was another way to... There were lots of other ways to go, but I think that at the time there was not much faith in the not-for-profit area from the government at the time when all that happened. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, money and control. So we've talked about how volunteer programs are actually run, but let's just focus a bit on the substance of, of volunteer work and I guess that the place of volunteers within Australia's overall effort. So I, I think what's tended to happen a bit over time is that volunteers are being brought more within the sphere of the, the government's official aid effort. They're being required to to meet certain professional standards, work within certain safety and security guidelines. Sometimes their work is required to be complementary to that of uh, the Australian government aid program in, in country X. And so more and more, it looks like volunteers are, in a sense, cut-price consultants. Now, obviously, there is no reason to have uh, cut-price consultants. Why not just pay them adequate wages? So I assume that's not a trend that you would be in favour of, but what, how do you avoid that? And, and how, do, how would you see the role of a volunteer as distinct from that of a consultant? I think, I think that to understand where I'd be coming from, you've got to go back to that thing I said before about the distinction between aid, service provision and development. Um, I think that uh, there is a place for consultants working, uh, working uh, in providing a service for, uh, for government uh, uh, as outsiders coming in and giving some expert advice and help on, on things. I have no, no hassles about that kind of thing. I think development and volunteers are different they they work with the uh, the community they work with the government they work uh, as employees of um, of uh, whoever it is they're working for they work alongside uh, their colleagues uh, they're much more like one of them uh, that's where the whole concept of volunteering came from in Australia uh, and uh, other parts of the world uh, picked it up from there, actually. The volunteer graduate scheme to Indonesia. It was all about building relationships between Australia and Indonesia and Australians working alongside of their counterparts in, uh, in Indonesia, working on the same salary level and on the same conditions. That's where the concept of volunteering, of international volunteering comes from. Uh, it was not quite like that with the Peace Corps, but it was very much like that in Canada and, uh, and VSO. Uh, it was that sort of idea. So there's a quite, quite a distinct difference in, in the, the role of a consultant, in my view, and, and the volunteer. Um, and, uh, I don't know whether that <laughs> I can go on from there, Robin, but it seems to me that that distinction it it means that it means that volunteering is about building relationships. It's about learning and living and working together and making a contribution, of course, at the same time. I used to be I used to be told by some government officials that Armstrong was only interested in in Australians being educated through their experience as volunteers, which was 
nonsense. It's a better word than the one I was going to use. Um, uh, because the two things go together, work together, build relationships, make a contribution. Of course, you don't go as a volunteer unless you've got a skill to take and you've got a job to go into. But it's just as important to build those relationships and to learn from one another and to bring that experience, that cross-cultural experience back to Australia uh, to help Australia be a better nation. But at the same time, you're making a contribution because you're taking your skill as an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or to a job that needs to be done. But it's a quite different approach than the consulting approach. Yeah, and I think uh, that it's really worth underlining something you've just said for our listener. Um, so volunteers don't do this precisely for nothing. Their, their basic costs are met, met and they will normally receive some sort of compensation, which is more or less on a par with that that people around them receive. And that's a completely different model and it, and it may well contribute a lot to their capacity to uh, build trust and credibility with their counterparts. Robin, I... Uh Um, I've always argued that, in my opinion, volunteering has very little to do with how much money a person earns, and yet the concept of volunteering uh, around the world, for that matter, is all about when when you use the word volunteer, it it immediately brings to mind, oh, here's a person who will do things for nothing. Um, because our whole world is built around money. Everything has to be measured by money. Volunteering is not is not that. It's not about doing things for nothing. Yes, some volunteers do things for nothing. That, that's true. But volunteering in the international sphere, and certainly Australian volunteering, has never been that, uh, and the basis was always to work on local salary and conditions to build relationships alongside of uh, your colleagues, and in that sense, you're working. You're working for uh, reconciliation. You're working for building uh, building a relationship between Australia and uh, and our and our neighbours and other parts of and other countries, and, uh, which is one of the aspects that's been lost, I think, uh, or is being lost by Australia because we're we're increasingly see uh, our neighbours and the rest of the world in terms of they're either a basket case to be helped or they're a uh, they're they're a trading ground for us to make money from rather than neighbours to build relationships with and uh, and I think we're losing that I think we've we've lost that very much with Indonesia and uh, and parts of the Pacific. Uh, and I think that's really sad. I think we're a lot closer to those parts of the world 20, 30, 40 years ago than we are today. Over the last decade or more, you've, you've become quite heavily involved in domestic volunteering, particularly in Indigenous communities through the organisation Indigenous Community Volunteers. I'm interested to know how much interest there is in the Australian community in volunteering in Indigenous communities versus volunteering overseas? And also, are there any connections between the two? Do some of the same people work uh, both domestically and internationally? And and do they sometimes set up relationships between domestic groups and organisations overseas? I uh, I became... I've I've had a, an interest in the uh, 
Indigenous Australian issue, First Australians, um, for a long, long time. But but I was particularly during my time as CEO of uh, of AVI, I took particular note of the numbers of volunteers who returned to Australia from working in other parts of the world, asking the question, what is happening in Australia? Uh, and they were asking that question for two reasons. One, their own interest, but also, two because they were so often asked that when they were overseas. So what? Uh, one of the things I attempted to do then, which is now back in the 90s, was to set up uh, we set uh, set up a program which was called uh, remote recruiting to recruit Australians to go and work in indigenous communities to recruit Australians who had the volunteer type attitude uh, in the case of we 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 actually recruited some 200 during that time and they went in on on salaries that were the salaries that were normally paid for those jobs but what we were looking for we were looking for and recruiting people who had the volunteer attitude they first of all wanted to be there they wanted to work with the indigenous population they wanted to learn from them and of course so they were then receiving a salary so that's where my interest goes back to uh, I've been now involved in Indigenous community volunteers for for some uh, I don't know 15 16 years now as we've slowly built it and it's become a community development organisation much more now than just a volunteer program although volunteers are very much uh, a part of it the interest in the Australian community uh, Robin uh, you there is no problems in finding people who are willing to go and work as volunteers for a time in Indigenous communities. Uh, The problem often is, the problem really is uh, finding a way in which the communities are enabled and able to, uh, to actually take control and responsibility for their own situations. But the interest, I find, interest in Australia... Uh, really very, very high. In fact, I've just come back from the Kimberley uh, where I attended the Kimberley Land Council annual general meeting and a number of other organisations, a language and cultural organisation there. And we've had lots of uh, volunteers working with those communities. Uh, And again, the fundamental thing that I get back from the people, the communities, the Indigenous people, is how fantastic these volunteers were. Not because they were such brilliant builders, or they probably were good builders or, or, or people who did a strategic plan, but because they built fantastic relationships with the community and the community keep, in, keep inviting them back to come back and work with them and want to keep in contact with them. So there's, there's a huge opening here. That, can I just say one final thing? The Australian government's approach to uh, to communities is still to do things to them, to do things for them, and then blame them when they don't take the responsibility themselves. Instead of, uh, it's very difficult to get government funding for us to do the sort of work we do. That is, work with the community uh, and enable them to take the responsibility. If that sort of makes sense. Just just to finish up, I want to ask. I guess two questions that are related. One's about you. Uh, 
you know, I think people would be wondering how a, a Federer and Turner ends up having the career that you had. Was it an accident um, or did you very, you know, purposefully move towards this this line of work, um, you know, when you when you joined OSB as it was way back in the in the early 60s as a staffer? Oh, there's no doubt that I very deliberately, after I got the job uh, working with the Overseas Service Bureau and the volunteer program, um, that set the uh, set the mould for me for the future. Um, and uh, and I continued, and I've, uh, I continued, and I was lucky enough to be able to continue to be involved in that uh, all the way through. But to understand how a fitter and turner moved. Uh, got to that stage is that I became involved as a 16-year-old, having left school at 15 to do my apprenticeship. I became involved in a youth organisation called the Young Christian Workers Movement, uh, which uh, was was my education, really. It was was an an organisation that has a different approach to education. It's experiential, it talks about experiential learning, has a methodology called See Judge Act. Uh, it's very much the same as Paulo Freire's Action Reflection uh, that people would know, the Brazilian educationalist. It's a bottom-up approach to education, not a top-down approach to education. Uh, and uh, so as a 16-year-old, I was being enabled and to take responsibility for social events and sporting events and uh, learnt to be responsible uh, that way. And uh, so it was a formation movement that uh, um, that set me on, that, on this track. Uh, the next step, of course, was that when I was finishing and when I was getting married, uh, I didn't have a job. And uh, that's where the luck came in. The Overseas Service Bureau was looking for somebody. At the time, uh, I can still remember the ad said uh, tertiary qualifications preferred, um, but I somehow got through that and uh, uh, and have not looked back, I suppose. So what you say about the, the Young Christian Workers Movement, I guess that leads me to the second part of the question, which is really around you know the, whether there's that kind of infrastructure these days. I mean... Um, do you think that, that there's anything like that that really promotes the sort of social and especially international commitment among younger people these days? There's very, very little today that's doing that kind of thing. Uh, the organisations, um, uh, that organisation, uh, which of course was a Catholic youth organisation, it it uh, turned out to be a bit too uh, progressive or a bit too radical for uh, the church, so the support uh, fell away, uh, which is what's happened uh, in many organisations, and I uh, suggest that it's not unconnected to what happened to what's happening to volunteering around the world or community-based organisations around the world. Um, so uh, I think there's very little. There's a struggle goes on in Australia with uh, Indigenous education between two methodologies. Uh, the one that's promoted by government is still the traditional top-down uh, learning, uh, that direct learning approach, which uh, Noel Pearson and, uh, and others promote. Uh, and yet the, the other one struggles, the bottom-up one, which is Chris Sara's approach, an Aboriginal leader in Australia, 
his approach, which is much more the the one that I grew up with, which is, you know, you begin with what people know and you build on it. You work work up there rather than than uh, than top down. There's very little of that that I can see happening around the world. But the second part of the question, though. Um, the young people, I think there's an incredible thirst among young people uh, to be involved and, and to participate. Uh, I'm not sure that they know how to, uh, and there's not too many organisations around that uh, that know what to do with their enthusiasm and uh, and their commitment. But, in, but the young people that I meet and I know I think uh, are really, really concerned about the issues that we've, we've been talking about, and uh, I, I hope that uh, that uh, we can bring about a change before I go anywhere. That's more or less where we finished, apart from some unpublishable chatter. So Bill retired around fifteen years ago now, but uh, is barely slowing down. He actually disconcerted me a bit at the beginning by telling me that uh, he just received his OBE. Uh, I soon discovered he meant over bloody 80, but uh, his age has not stopped him. He's uh, just recently returned from the Kimberleys. Um, he's still very active with uh, Indigenous community volunteers and is just winding back a little bit with some of his uh, other activities in, in Victoria. So Bill's going strong. You can read more about him in the Development Policy Centre's Aid Profiles series. Just go to our website, devpolicy.org, and search on Aid Profiles, Bill Armstrong. Thanks for listening. <laughs>